The AI Today podcast, produced by Cognolytica, cuts through the hype and noise to identify what is really happening now in the world of artificial intelligence. Learn about emerging AI trends, technologies, and use cases from Cognolytica analysts and guest experts. Hello, and welcome to the AI Today podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Malk. And I'm your host, Ronald Schmelzer. Our guest today is Dr. Ben Gertzel, who is the CEO and founder of the Singularity Net Foundation. Hi, Ben. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome, Ben, and thank you so much for joining us. We'd like to start by having you briefly introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about your background and the Singularity Net Foundation. Sure. So I'm a mathematician originally, got my PhD in math in the late 1980s, but I've really been deeply interested in artificial intelligence since I was a kid, since the early 1970s, really. And now I've been 30 plus years doing artificial intelligence research and development, some of which has been oriented toward artificial general intelligence, the creation of AIs that can think just like people and ultimately better than people some of which has been oriented toward applying AI to solve practical problems. And in that context, I've worked across pretty much every vertical market, a whole bunch of fintech, business analytics, a lot of health tech, from hospital process optimization to genomics for drug discovery and understanding the causes of aging, some robotics, industrial stuff, and also the Sophia robot we made with Hanson Robotics, which is the world's most realistic humanoid robot, the first robot citizen. And the last few years, I've been leading a team at SingularityNet creating decentralized blockchain-based AI platform that lets multiple AIs written and owned by different people provide services to anyone who needs them and also cooperate with each other and share data with each other, but all in a decentralized way that's sort of organized democratically by the AIs in the network. And I'm now engaged in building a bunch of things on top of that Singularity Net platform. So we have a project called Singularity Studio, which is building advanced AI systems for enterprises, especially in the health tech space. A project called Rejuve that's using Singularity AI for life extension biology and just discover new therapies to prolong life. And a project called True AGI that's aimed at using the whole Singularity Net infrastructure to push directly toward making real thinking machines. So it's been a mix of you know very ambitious AGI stuff and practical businessy AI stuff, and these have intersected in all sorts of cool ways through the years. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. And that's part of, I think, what makes this a really interesting conversation because at AI Today, you know, we're almost 160 episodes into it. And you can imagine that 95%, maybe even more, 97% of the episodes are very specific, narrow applications of particular, we call the seven patterns of AI, you know, as applied to very particular problems. So it could be a recognition or a conversation or pattern matching or predictive analytics or hyper-personalization or autonomous systems or goal-driven systems. Those are the seven patterns. But they're doing particular things. Very rarely do we talk about AGI, which of course is that ultimate goal of building the intelligence system, much like our brain. We don't have a narrow intelligence brain. We have a brain that can adopt and adapt to many different situations. You know, we track in our research at Cognolytica over 20,000 vendors in this AI space, and 80% of them are very much point 
focus, maybe even more, again, 90%. And we produce about 40 to 50 reports. And in our reports, we're looking at all these different cases. And something that we did in our global AI adoptions trend and forecast report, which is available on Cognolytica.com, we talk about how organizations are ramping up their adoption of AI. But when they think about AI, they're not thinking about necessarily AGI, the big ultimate goal. So from your perspective, you know, where is the industry and academic research right now in terms of realizing the goals of artificial general intelligence? And maybe for our audience, maybe explain it a little bit further, especially from your perspective, you've been focused on it for a while. You know, talk about the goals of AGI and kind of where are we with that? By artificial general intelligence, what we mean is a system that can generalize in an imaginative and creative way beyond its experience, beyond what it was explicitly programmed or trained for, and still display intelligence in fundamentally different contexts. And AGI, artificial general intelligence, certainly is a fuzzy rather than all or nothing concept. I mean, humans are not maximally generally intelligent. You know, we can't prove arbitrarily complex math theorems or run mazes in 500 dimensions, but we're clearly more generally intelligent than, for example, a worm or any current commercial AI system. And, you know, in the course of my research career, I've seen the pursuit of AGI become far more legitimated in the academic sphere and in industry research labs. And we've seen progressively more and more progress for AGI on the research level. I mean, if you look in in game playing, you had AlphaGo, which only played Go, then AlphaZero, which is more general intelligence. It, it, It can learn to play any board game. And in, say, bio AI, I mean, we can now do transfer learning where what your AI learns in one clinical trial can be extended to qualitatively different clinical trials. So we're getting more and more general AI, but still, I mean, the grand goal of human level artificial general intelligence remains for the future. Of course, businesses setting aside research labs in industry, of course, Businesses are centrally concerned with what already works and is proven, and how can they deploy that to make money, grow market share, and so forth. And at the moment, the stuff that's really best proven in the AI field in terms of practical function is highly narrow AI, which is carrying out one particular function based on a particularly training data or particularly engineered rules and so forth. But I think we're about to enter a new era in which we're going to see what I refer to as sort of narrow AGI systems. What I mean by that is systems that are starting to display palpable degrees of general intelligence and ability to transfer knowledge to fundamentally new things, but maybe first displaying that AGI in, say, a particular vertical market. So say a narrow AGI in the health tech space could be very good at transferring knowledge from model organisms to humans or from clinical trials on one disease to clinical trials on other diseases. And that's sort of big steps in the direction of AGI, even if not with the exact same breadth of scope that humans have. So I think we're just on the verge of that transition. And of course, folks like OpenAI slash Microsoft and Google DeepMind, Google Brain, these groups are thinking the same way, right? They're working hard on taking their own proto-AGI R&D and figuring out how to infuse it into the next generation of practical AI products. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting term that you bring up, narrow artificial general intelligence. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, for a lot of organizations, Ron and I deliver training. We have both virtual and in-person when we can meet in person. And for a lot of organizations, I think that they're not quite ready 
they're still at the early stages of narrow AI, let alone even thinking about the AGI. So it's just interesting where different industries are, where different companies are. And I think for the large majority of companies, they're a lot less farther along than people realize. We also deliver a lot of webinars at Cognolytica. And the companies that present there are doing some pretty incredible things, but they're still within the narrow field. So we encourage all of our listeners to check out our webinars at Cognolytica.com if you'd like to learn more about that. But Ben, I want to focus this question on artificial general intelligence, because I know that a lot of companies are struggling with even just narrow AI. But what are some of the barriers right now to AGI research and adoption? Yeah, I mean, I think actually in many ways, as AGI works better and better, it may be easier to adopt than narrow AI is, actually. And if you think about hiring a human, if you hire a human who's very, very specialized and can't think outside of their little box, you have to have just the right setup to make use of that human. Whereas if you hire a human who's a bit more of a generalist, then they can adapt and figure out how to fit into your your company and to do what's needed. And in, in the same way, I think moving from narrow AI to AGI can help solve the problem that you know every CEO knows they need AI, but they don't really know what it is or how to use it. I mean, to the extent that we move toward general intelligence, the AI will be able to adapt to the context better. And like in a health tech context, I mean, if someone wants to use AI to help with, say, precision medicine for clinical trials... I mean, right now, you can't just drop an AI and a hospital's IT system and say, well, you know, figure out what patients this medicine will work for. You know, there's a lot more data pre-processing and system integration work to feed the narrow AI what it needs, right? And that's one of the things we're looking at with the Singularity Studio project and health tech projects is how do you use elements of AGI technology to make something that's more just plug and play to say help a pharma company with precision medicine. So I think for in terms of adoption of AGI, really that the issue is that we don't have advanced narrow AGI systems yet. I think once we do, that's going to transform the market because it'll be easier to use and, and integrate. And in terms of research toward AGI systems, I mean I think you know it's better than it has been historically during my career. 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, it was almost impossible to get any research funding from anywhere for general intelligence work. And now researchers are being funded for AGI work in companies and universities by by governments. It's a minute fraction of the narrow AI work that's out there, but it's large compared to what was the case in the past. I mean, I'd say that the main issue, to the extent there is one, is the same as in many domains of, of science and engineering, which is that funding sources prefer to focus on things that are more predictable and closer to what's already proven. And I mean, typically everyone wants to say they're being radically adventurous and embracing wild out there, insane new ideas and pioneering the brave new future. Well, at the same time, they actually want to avoid taking any risks at all. And they actually stay very close to what's already known. And that's the case with narrow AI versus AGI, just as it is in so many other areas of research and development. You know, it's really interesting, you know, we think about the bears, you know, as I guess research outsiders, because we haven't spent all of our life doing research in this field. But, you know, we have spent a lot of time on the entrepreneurial side. You know, Kathleen and I also used to run quite a few events focused on the venture capital world. And there's a lot of money. There really is a lot of significant money flowing into AI. We'll have to see what happens over the next few years. But but, but all VCs hate technology risk, right? I mean, what AI VCs want now, they want you to have a sort of unique 
source of data in some very narrow vertical market, train machine learning models on that data source, show there's a like model to market fit, mm-hmm. and then sell a product wrapping up that machine learning model a bit until you can get an acquisition exit to a big tech company who incorporates your model as a feature. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's it's a reasonable niche of business, but it doesn't really match AGI especially well. That's true. I guess maybe one of my question points to you is that if funding is the primary barrier to AGI for saying like, oh, the the thing that's really holding back, you know, achieving some of these, I would say fundamentally breakthrough, you know, if we can achieve artificial intelligence at near human levels, even not even at the human levels, that would be something pretty fairly, uh, you know, a big step for humanity. And it will be the biggest step in the history of humanity and perhaps the last step for humanity in its classic form. Right. But if it was said like it's just money holding us back, you would think that, you know, especially Microsoft throwing all this money at OpenAI and, and all, you know, Google throwing money at Facebook and all these companies. And Ch- of course, China as a country throwing tons of money. If money was the primary objective, see, I would think that it was maybe something else. Like, you know, we haven't quite figured well, out. You know, algorithm. Take, yeah. Take another example I've worked on, which is similarly a head scratcher, is longevity research. Like there's all sorts of breakthroughs recently in the biology of aging and longevity. And one would think, since if we don't cure aging, we're all going to end up dead, then humanity would be putting a tremendous amount of resources behind conquering death. But, you know, it's not the case. You have guys like Aubrey de Grey, who's been at the forefront of longevity research for decades, who's still struggling to fund his research. So, I mean, this is the perversity of humanity and and of of our, our modern economy. It is perplexing, but that's the way it is. Definitely, definitely very interesting. It, it, it is a bit of a paradox, right? Because these very fundamental things, if we're, you know, if it's just about resources, we should be throwing resources into them because we can, you know, make yeah, these... Yeah, but there's places. a timing yeah. problem too, right? Because mm-hmm. living through something, we see it on a very micro time scale. And looking back 50 years from now, it may look like, wow, as AGI and longevity progress advance, you know, funding poured in. Mm-hmm. And because from a historical perspective... If there was like a five or 10 year lag between the promise becoming clear and the funding pouring in, that will seem like nothing historically. It's just when you're, when you're in the middle of it, it seems a really long time. I mean, just like getting through middle school seems like it takes forever when you're 12 years old. And in hindsight, it was an instant. Yeah. It's really interesting. Well, this is great because we've never really talked about the subject like this. So I think our listeners will find this very interesting. You know, one thing we have spent a lot of time talking about is this idea of automation and intelligence. You know, especially people see robots of different kinds, which are mostly fundamentally not particularly intelligent, especially of the industrial kind. And also, you know, software robots, this whole robotic process automation thing. We've spent many, many years talking about that. And you know, something, you know, we, we have our AI demo showcase. If you go to AIDemoshowcase.com, you'll actually see some of these products demonstrated. We have this great thing. It's like a show and tell format thing where the rule is basically no slides. So you have to only show the thing you want to demo. And, you know, when you see these things, people think about, they love to think about robots because they have, they're anthropomorphized, right? You know, they look like, you know, whether humans or they look like other creatures that are alive. And, you know, obviously you mentioned Sophia in the introduction. And we've talked about that, you know, the, is it meant to be just an illustration of something that is automation, right? But not necessarily an illustration of intelligence, or is it meant to illustrate something else? 
And so what, you know, what is the role of, of these robots and anthropomorphic creatures, you know, creations, you know, in, for AGI? And are robots, you know, is it necessary to be thinking about AGI in the context of robots or is it a distraction? Some people have, you know, as you can imagine, have called Sophia kind of more of a sideshow and kind of more of an illustration of automata, but not necessarily of the intelligent kind. So maybe you could sort of dig into all that. Yeah, absolutely. So it was an honor and a privilege and a really fun time to be the head of software and head of AI enhanced robotics for, I guess, uh, three and a half years. And, you know, we made Sophia you know, the first robot citizen and, and a celebrity and so forth. And uh, I'm still collaborating with Hanson Robotics through the partnership of SingularityNet and Hanson Robotics. And I think Sophia is really two things. I mean, she's a personality and a, a character, a media presence. And then as a robot, She's a platform, which you can use to run a bunch of different AI systems on. And for Sophia to give a speech, you know, she's giving content largely that was created by human authors who figured out what kind of speech she should be giving. And when she's telling jokes, of course, she didn't make up those jokes. On the other hand, we've also used Sophia as a platform for running OpenCog, which is a more sophisticated, like neural symbolic learning and reasoning system that we're now further developing within SingularityNet to let us develop smarter services on our platform. So it's a little confusing because she always looks like the same robot, but like one time she may be reciting a human authored speech. Another time she may be running a relatively simple, although also in some ways sophisticated chatbot system for amusing conversation. Another time she may be running an open cog learning and reasoning system. And based on a single sentence out of her mouth, I can't always tell which control system is running in the background, though I, over like 10 minutes, you could tell from the nature of the interaction. Right? And I think uh, we can use these robots for a number of things. I mean, in a sort of robot preschool context, Certainly, it would be amazing to see robots like that gain the sort of abilities that a human three or four year old child has. And, you know, Sophia has a wheeled base now. She can roll around. She's used legs now and then, but it's usually the wheels. The hands they've connected are more and more capable. So I think we're getting to the point where we can start using the Hanson robots for AGI research in a sort of robot preschool setting. On the other hand, I've also been talking a lot lately with David Hansen about potentially, and this isn't finally confirmed yet, but we, we've been discussing the potential of a robot nursing assistant project where you would use, it wouldn't be Sophia, but a different robot character. You'd use the robot to help out in an elder care and a hospital context. And I mean, obviously, people now are interested in having robot nursing assistants that won't spread COVID. But there's a lot of other assets there, say, for patients with neurodegenerative disease. The robots can do assessment, but they can also provide you know, emotional support, cognitive training and so forth. So I think there's a research value, there's a showmanship value, and there's also potentially a strong humanitarian and commercial value, which the potential robot nursing assistant application highlights. Whether a human-like interface is necessary for AGI, I mean, of course it's not necessary. On the other hand, given how well-configured humans are to interact with other beings that have human-like faces... You could argue that a robot like Sophia is uniquely well-suited to interact emotionally and socially with people. So that may be the ideal way to get human values and culture with all its nuances sucked into the AI's mind. 
which has all sorts of advantages in, in terms of AI's understanding humans well and absorbing the nuances of human ethics and all that. Yeah, that is really interesting. And it's also interesting to bring up this idea of how can robots like Sophia be applied to more helpful situations. And I know that there's a lot of talk about robots in hospitals and how they can play a part with COVID. I think that that's coming up just in general. How can we interject robots there? So it would definitely be interesting to see what you guys continue to do there. And we'll keep an eye on that. But you had talked about OpenCog with your last response. So maybe for our listeners, can you dig a little bit deeper into what exactly is OpenCog and its relationship to artificial general intelligence? Yeah, absolutely. So OpenCog is... It's an open source software system. It was launched in 2008 based on code that had been development for quite a while before that. And it represents an architecture aimed at human level artificial general intelligence, which is quite different in nature from the, you know, supervised learning based deep neural nets and decision trees and so on that have achieved so many practical things in, in industry lately. So I mean, OpenCog is a hybrid AGI architecture where we have multiple different AI algorithms cooperating together on a common dynamic knowledge store. And the knowledge store is called the Atom Space. It's a weighted labeled hypergraph, which is intended to store all sorts of knowledge in a common meta representation. So it stores like facts and beliefs, declarative knowledge, procedures, little programs and processes for doing things, and sensory data of different modalities. It integrates these all in a common knowledge hypergraph. Then you have neural nets, you have logical reasoning engine, you have evolutionary learning engines, many different AI algorithms cooperating together on this knowledge graph, which can then be set to achieve various goals. Like We've used it to control Sophia Robot in the past to enable her to have more flexible, adaptive conversations. We're using this system now to crunch genomics data with a view toward precision medicine. For example, we're working with some folks running clinical trials on combinations of antivirals against COVID-19. And there we're using OpenCog to try to figure out for each patient based on their unique genomics what combination of antivirals may help them best. And, you know, the data is scant there. It's a disease that's not understood that well. So you really need a modicum of general intelligence to be able to extract the patterns from this limited and peculiar data. And, you know, we've been working on OpenCog for a while, sort of applying it on the back end of, of systems like Sophia and like some med tech systems. And now a number of us who have been at the core of OpenCog Project are, you know, refactoring and rebuilding the core of the system with an aim toward just getting massively more scalability. Because I think, you know, what we've seen with uh, neural nets in the last few years is the same core algorithms that were there in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, when we just got a lot more scale behind them. Then with minor modifications to the algorithms, suddenly the amount of practical functionality increased astoundingly. So I think we're going to see the same with these hybrid graph database systems like OpenCog. When we get a really scalable implementation behind them, we're going to see them suddenly achieving tremendous things with only modest improvements to the algorithms. So we're looking at uh, rebuilding OpenCog for massive scalability on concurrent and distributed processing infrastructure. And then uh, 
from a business view, this would apply, you know, across every vertical market, right? I mean, in Singularity Studio, we'll look at applying the new version of OpenCog, which we're calling OpenCog Hyperon. We'll look at using that in medical technology for clinical trial analytics and medical robots. But then with the company True AGI, we want to apply that to robots in every vertical market and also to smart devices, right? Like, I mean, now on our phones, we have Siri, Google Assistant, you have know, Cortana, well, that's gone now, right? But I mean, you have these virtual assistants that try to be smart, but really have no idea what they're doing or what they're talking about. So they're a very limited utility. I mean, what if the virtual assistants on your phone actually understood what was going on in your life? Then, you know, how much more helpful could they be? And how much training data would an assistant like that provide to the AI behind it to upgrade its capabilities more and more, right? So I think uh, along with the biology and Sophia robot application, we're looking at this sort of virtual assistant application as something that can drive the development of open cog toward greater and greater general intelligence. And this is, again, the narrow AGI point of view, right? I mean, open cog is aimed at full-on human-level general intelligence. I think the path by which we're going to get there is by taking practical applications like these and enhancing their general intelligence bit by bit. And this is going to be, you know, the big story in the next five years for the progress of AI. Yeah, that's really interesting that you mentioned the voice assistant. Our listeners on the podcast have heard us talk about the problems with voice assistants many times because it's a joke. It's almost become a little bit of a joke where people think, oh, no, the super intelligence is coming. And we're like, well, have you talked to Siri lately? Have you talked to Alexa lately? <laughs> it's a good indication of kind of how smart these systems are. They can actually understand what you're really talking about because a lot yeah, of them. There's a lack of understanding of context. Exactly. Right, And that gets close to the general intelligence problem, because if you have a system that can understand a narrow problem in the broader context in which it has occurred, I mean, then that's really the crux of what it takes to be generally intelligent. And I think that that hits on an important point in terms of the more narrow, practical AIs that you're often dealing with on your podcast, because... Not every application needs a general intelligence, right? I mean, some applications will bore the pants off any general intelligence anyway, because they're very repetitive. And it may be that a lot of what our AGIs do is create and then coordinate narrow AIs that are doing very narrow things and doing them well. But the judgment of, you know, what narrow AI is needed where, that's a general intelligence problem. Yeah, that is fundamentally something that we have been digging into. We actually run a benchmark. We For the last two years, we do it. We have benchmarked the voice assistants on their ability to answer tough questions of intelligence. Things like, do I need an umbrella today? You know, it's kind of funny. You know, that question requires actually understanding a couple levels. Or like, you know, what's faster, a worm or a tiger? You know, or we used to trip up the voice assistants. We'd ask, you know, how long should I put a 14-pound turkey in the oven? And, you know, that's of all the things that voice assistants should do, that's one thing they should do pretty easily because... Because usually you're asking a voice assistant when your hands are stuffed inside of a turkey. <laughs> you can't be swiping or typing it. And the voice assistants would actually fail on many of those marks. And they still do. We ask 12 categories of questions to the voice assistants. And I think the best that they can do is something like 20 or 30 percent. Uh, responses that make any sense at all. And so we continue to push them. We haven't made a decision as to well whether we'll rerun the benchmark in 2020. And you're right, Cortana's out of the running. Samsung hasn't really advanced its Bixby. It's kind of really down to <laughs> down to yeah. down that, to a few. A weird one because they bought Viv, which seemed kind of smart. And I, I, don't know, I don't know what happened to that. But. Yeah, I think the, the business model has always been the challenge. But actually, the real thing is, of course, is the development of at least a knowledge graph or something. 
you know, even if you have humans building those knowledge graphs, you need to do something. Yeah, so the business model challenge is part of why I like robots such as Sophia or applications like biomedical research, because I mean, a Sophia type robot is pretty expensive, which means that you can afford some server time to operate their mind. And of course, if you're trying to cure COVID, I mean, you can spend a lot of servers crunching that data, right? So an issue with the smartphone assistance, I mean, these are free services, right? So, I mean, mm -hmm. there's a limit to how many servers you can use behind the minds of your personal Siri with the business model that's currently being rolled out. On the other hand, you know, how much would you pay for a virtual assistant that actually understood what was going on? I mean, the, the increased capability might shift the business model as well. And I think that, yeah, with OpenCog, I think we have the fundamental architecture that can do that. And then our singularity net blockchain-based AI platform can help too. I mean, OpenCog provides what I think is the critical ingredient of the ability to generalize and to understand specific situations in a broader context. But then this sort of general AI, you know, it needs to suck in all sorts of data and knowledge about all sorts of different things. And something like Siri or Alexa has sort of a fixed set of mm -hmm. integrations on the back end, supplying it with data, whereas the notion of SingularityNet as a broad-based decentralized platform is just to have a, a much broader source of information sources feeding into the general AI mind. So there's a whole lot of pieces to build, but I mean, there's never been a more exciting time to be involved with building them because the supporting infrastructure is so much better. And, you know, even though AGI is still not funded to the level that it should be, you know, compared to past history, there's been tremendous progress and things are getting friendlier and friendlier. Yeah, well, you definitely at the cutting edge of this research. So we'll ask you, because we, we have asked others, you know, in your opinion, you know, how likely are we to see artificial general intelligence or, or even the narrow AGI within our lifetimes or maybe the stronger form of AGI? Because, you know, if you talk to folks like Rodney Brooks, for example, he is not necessarily of the positive soon-to-be perspective. And you talk to other people like Ray Kurzweil, of course, and, you know, they are uh, much more uh, optimistic about the short-termness. And both Ray Kurzweil and Rodney Brooks, we've invited them to our podcast. We really hope that they will show up as well. But we have you right now on our podcast, so you can opine on your own about kind of how close we are to realizing these goals of AGI. Yeah, I mean, as you know, up until the day that the Wright brothers got uh, human flight to work, there were famous uh, scientists pronouncing that it was fundamentally impossible for various reasons. So the fact that there are, are clever, famous people with some background saying something will never happen or won't happen for a long time. I mean, that's just uh, that's just the way humanity rolls, right? So I'm certainly more on Ray Kurzweil's side on this issue. I mean, I think we could plausibly be just a few years from human-level AGI, and there may be hidden rocks which could cause it to take another 10 or 15 years from now. But, I mean, there's no way we're... 50 years away from human-level AGI or something. So, I mean, I think the, the basic concepts we need to realize that are in hand right now, and we need scalable infrastructures of the type that we're building with the new OpenCog Hyperon architecture. And, you know, we certainly, there's more research and development and experimentation to be done. But I think the I don't think we need any revolutionary new technologies or concepts that don't exist now. I think there's just a lot of 
pieces to put together at large scale, then you have the system learn from its experiences over a period of time from a whole bunch of different sensors and conditioning. It's learning on a whole bunch of different data fed into it. So, I mean, I think we know what to do. Some of us are putting our lives into doing it. That doesn't let you predict exactly how long it will take. I mean, I'm 53. I think unless I'm quite unlucky, we're certainly going to see it in my lifetime. Yeah. You know, we always like to ask that question because the answers just vary widely. I mean, you know, people like you are very optimistic on it and having it in your lifetime would be incredible. What would that do? How would I'm that do your life? Because I understand how to do it. If I didn't understand how to do it, I'd feel more uncertain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, but I mean, there's other luminaries in the field too, as Ron mentioned, that just have differencing of opinion on it. And so, yeah. yeah. So Rodney Brooks. I mean, his whole thing has been subsumption robotics, and he thinks that you need to make very simple, low-level subsystems connected to sensors and actuators and get intelligence to emerge that way. And I think if we have to proceed that way, it will take centuries or millennia to get to AGI. But fortunately, one doesn't have to proceed in that awkward sort of way, right? Yeah, that's an interesting perspective, because actually, that makes an interesting point, which is that we have the power of human intelligence. I think what you're saying is that, well, let's rest on the shoulder of giants, right? We have human intelligence. Yeah, you don't don't have to emulate the human brain, Mm -hmm. which would be really cool, but we don't have the wetware engineering capabilities right now. You don't have to emulate the process of evolution and go from bugs to mice and so forth, which is is really, really cool and was what Rodney Brooks has historically tried to do. You don't have to make artificial life and simulate, you know, the prebiotic soup and so forth. I mean, you have to understand the principles of how a general intelligence operates and figure out the best way to instantiate those principles in computing systems that we can actually build and teach right now, which may involve some things that resemble evolution and some things that resemble the brain and may involve some things that don't resemble any of those, but just leverage the current infrastructure that, in terms of hardware and software that we have to work with. And I think if you don't understand the problem the right way on the theoretical level, it could seem insanely difficult. And going back to flight, I mean, if you're spending your life trying to make an artificial feather, so one day you can make an artificial bird, I mean, that's a way to make things fly, but in some ways is much harder than making an airplane. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting point that you bring up, that to recreate intelligence doesn't mean you have to do it in the human way. You could just recreate it to get to your desired end Well, humans are very stupid in many ways, right? I mean, recreating a human is not even that worthwhile. We've got too many damn humans already. I mean, it's better if you can make a mind that doesn't have the cognitive and the ethical and social limitations that humans have. That's really funny. I never thought of it that way. I know. We have have too many humans already. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Never thought of it that way. Yeah. So, Ben, this has been such an incredible podcast. And I'd like to wrap this up with asking you about where you believe the future of artificial intelligence is. I know that we talked a lot on this podcast about AGI and our quest towards AGI and how we're working towards getting that. And I know that you've had a very varied background and diverse background working with different government agencies and different businesses and different industries, which has been incredible. And at Cognolytica, we run a regular monthly AI and government event where we interview various leaders in the government on how they are approaching and applying AI. 
because I think that it's important to have those conversations. You know, the government for a very long time was and still is a big funder of AI. And I think it's important to hear what they have to say. So if our listeners are interested in checking that out, go to AIandgovernment.com. We have monthly events and we encourage you to attend. They're now all virtual and all free to attend. But as a final note, I'd like to ask you what you believe the future of artificial intelligence is in general and its application to organizations and beyond. I think the future of AI is going to be a gradual transition from narrow AI to AGI through various what I call narrow AGIs, which could also be thought of as sort of vertical market focused early stage AGIs. Probably the next step is going to be neural symbolic systems that combine neural nets with symbolic reasoning engines in a tightly integrated way to achieve greater generalization than we're getting with pure neural or supervised machine learning models. And then systems like OpenCog that are broader hybrids integrating multiple algorithms in a common knowledge store are really going to going to take a leading role in narrow AGI systems across different vertical markets. In terms of applications to the enterprise, I think we're going to need to see a more holistic approach. I mean, I think that uh, the approach where you have narrowly trained machine learning systems solving this function, that function, the other function, the other function, and these are then glued together within non-intelligent IT infrastructures. I mean, I think this uh, is better than not having any AI, but it's going to reach its limit. And you're going to need to see AI systems deployed across the entire enterprise, helping to coordinate the narrow AI systems and all the different forms of data. And that's not coincidentally what we're building toward with the company Singularity Studio, which is one of the for-profit spinoffs that we've created from Singularity Net Foundation. And there's an analog to the medical case where we really need to see more holistic medicine, where AI integrates data across different organisms and different levels of the body. So I think part of the message there is as you move from narrow AI toward AGI, you'll be able to move toward intelligences that have a more holistic understanding of the systems that they're helping with, be that the human body in a medical context or a whole company in an enterprise context. Well, this has been fantastic. Once again, we want to thank you so much for joining us. And listeners, we do have a bonus podcast episode. So stay tuned. You go to AIToday.live and register and you'll hear we have a couple more questions we're going to dig into with Ben. I know this has been a, a longer podcast than usual because it's been fantastic and fascinating conversation point here. We'll ask a little bit about some innovations that have accelerated the path to AGI. So you may hear a little bit about that. Talk a little about some AI technologies that may be sort of coming down the road. So you may want to hear a little bit about that. Once again, go to AIToday.live and register and you'll see the bonus podcast episode there. So just wanted to thank Dr. Ben Gertzel so much for joining us here and being such a fantastic and fascinating expert here on the AI Today podcast. Well, thanks. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Ben, so much. This has been a very fascinating podcast and on a topic that we don't talk about a lot. So, you know, I think our listeners will really appreciate that. Listeners, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please make sure to rate us on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and your favorite podcast platform. As always, we'll post any articles and concepts discussed in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you at the next podcast. And that's a wrap for today. To download this episode, find additional episodes and transcripts, subscribe to our newsletter and more, please visit our website at Cognolitica.com. Join the discussion in between podcasts on the AI Today Facebook group, and make sure to join the Cognolitica Facebook page for updates on this and future podcasts. Also, subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Play, and elsewhere to get notified of future episodes.
Want to support this podcast and get your message out to our listeners? Then become a sponsor. We offer significant benefits for AI Today sponsors, including promotion in the podcast and landing page, and opportunities to be a guest on the AI Today show. For more information on sponsorship, visit the Cognolytica website and click on the podcast link. This sound recording and its contents is copyright by Cognolytica. All rights reserved. Music by Matsu Gravas. As always, thanks for listening to AI Today, and we'll catch you at the next podcast.